My husband and I have been married almost 54 years. And we raised three daughters. They were all raised in church and, you know, loved Jesus. Lisa called me up, that's my daughter, my middle daughter, and she said, Mom, I have a sore throat and I think I need to go to the doctor. And I said, well, you better, it could be strep throat. Then later that night, about 11 o'clock, she called me and she said, they're looking at leukemia. She went through the chemo. They couldn't get her counts down. Eventually they told us that she was gonna die, you know, in a few, a few days, but she lasted about three weeks. We always had music playing by her bed, gospel music. It was playing How Great Thou Art. And I remember talking to God about that song. I said, you know, I don't know why that song was playing, God, but I don't think this is so great right now. I, I don't think you're great right now. God finally got through to my spirit. And he said, I'm good, I'm great because of the cross. I'm great because you're gonna see her again because she knew Jesus. I'm great because God's word is true and I'm real. And he revealed to me, that's why he's so great. That's why he's so great because I will see her again. A couple years into my grief, I began to ask God, what do you wanna do with these tears? And in my spirit, he told me, you know, you can encourage others, you can help others that have grief. My oldest daughter um, said, Mom, Sagebrush has a grief group. You should come. Uh, so I did, shared my story. And after a few times going, the leader came up and said, Julie, have you ever considered facilitating a grief share group? So I said, sure, sure I will. And I said, God spoke to me and I'm supposed to be doing something. I guess I've been facilitating grief share for about 10 or 12 years. I'm grateful that God can use my pain. When you find that someone's going through the same thing, somehow that helps you. You're not supposed to grieve alone. So there's people around the table that are hurting too, and they're crying and sad, but we see God working in their lives. It's a wonderful thing to see. And God has brought wonderful, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ alongside me that facilitate with me. You know, we can't fix you, but Jesus can. I'm so grateful to serve the Lord. That he will use us is amazing. I don't just attend the church. I am the church. And that's, that's a beautiful testimony when the church is working right. We look out for each other. We love each other. We comfort each other. We help each other. Even though we walk the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. For he is with us. His rod and his strength, they comfort us, don't they? You know, Satan intended for evil, God can somehow turn around it for good, and God never ever wastes pain. He always has a plan, he always has a purpose, and even though it doesn't make any sense on this side of eternity, we'll be faithful until he explains those things to us. I love a defiant faith story. No matter what may happen to me, no matter what may happen in my life, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, I'm so glad that you are with us here today. I'm thankful for those of you who joined us on the stream and on TV as well. We're grateful for you being a part of the Sagebrush family. We are in the middle of a series called Escaping Ordinary. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we're up to Acts chapter 10. Now, one of the things that I've loved about our study, I hope you've loved it as much as I have, one of the things that I've loved about this study is that the disciples didn't look for someone else to do what Jesus commanded them to do. 
Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And they didn't look to the left or to the right for someone to do what Jesus had commanded them to do. They didn't look for someone in front of them or behind them. They said, here am I, Lord, send me. So reading this book by David Platt, the book's called Radical. And in the book, he talked about an encounter that he had with a local church. David said when he was early in the ministry, he was a missionary. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of missionaries, have to raise their own financial support. So they will find a church or two or, or a family or two and they will give that person a check every month and then they're able to do the ministry where God has planted them to go. And so David was working in New Orleans. He also had some inroads to the Middle East. And one of the things you have to do as a missionary is you have to keep that support going. So you will go and you'll visit these different churches that are supporting you financially to kind of give a report to the congregation and hopes that they'll continue to send you a check. So that's the situation that David finds himself in. He's going to this church that supports his ministry. He's going to speak on Sunday morning, but on Saturday night, they had a little get-together over at the pastor's house, had all the deacons over as well. And one of the deacons said to David, said, tell us about your ministry. Tell us about the work that God's doing in your life. And so David began to share about his work in New Orleans. He talked about the poverty, about the homelessness, about the gang violence, about the drug addiction. He said, in the midst of all that chaos and confusion. Jesus' light shines even brighter. People are giving their lives to Jesus Christ. It's just an honor to be a part of where God is already at work. And then he began to share about the Middle East. He said, I've also had some inroads to the Middle East. I've been able to go over there several times. And it's amazing to me, but for the first time really in human history, there are more Middle Easterns giving their lives to Jesus Christ than there ever has been before in the history of mankind. It's like a revival has taken place all throughout the Middle East. Well, that's very exciting, isn't it? And so he, he paused for a second to get their response, to get their reaction. No one said anything. Well, it was long pause, and then finally a deacon spoke up, and he said, David, we appreciate all the hard work that you're putting in, but to be honest with you, I just wish God would annihilate all those people and send them to hell where they belong. That's what he said. And David thought to himself, did I just hear what I think I just heard? And he kind of paused, and he looked around the room looking for someone to say, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that even came out of your mouth. The love of God isn't in you if you believe something like that. And yet no one came to the defense and said, hey, man, that's wrong. You shouldn't talk like that. You, you shouldn't act like that. In fact, everybody in the room was nodding their heads in agreement. David said, well, just when I thought that things couldn't get worse, they did. He said the next day he had to go speak at the church. So he goes to the church. They sing a couple of songs. The pastor comes out. He welcomes everybody. And then he goes off about being an American. And how proud he is to be an American and how he wouldn't want to live anyplace else except the United States of America. And everybody was shouting out their amens and they were nodding in agreement to what the preacher had to say. David said, I was waiting for Lee Greenwood to show up in the corner and all of a sudden start singing, I'm proud to be an American. Well, it was David's turn to finally speak. And he spoke about God's heart for all people, all races. All cultures and how God had called us to go and be a light, to go and be the salt of the earth. Well, he got done speaking. And the pastor came down to the front, put his arm around David. 
He said, David, we really appreciate all the hard work of what you're doing and for God's heart for all of the nations. And I just want you to know, David, we're going to keep sending you a check so we don't have to go to those places. That's what he said. And then he said this. He said, years ago, we had a missionary came here from Japan and he was looking for us to support him. And I told the people on that day, you need to open up your wallets. Because if you don't support this missionary, I'm going to pray that your kids end up being missionaries to Japan. Now, did I, did I hear what I think I just heard? Did he just threaten his congregation with the great commission of Jesus Christ as if going would be a bad thing? Listen to me. Whenever God wanted something to be done, he called his children, his followers, to go. Look at the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here's the question we got to ask ourselves. Have we followed through? Have we individually and as a church obeyed the command of God to go? And I'm not talking about going on a mission trip. I'm not talking about uprooting your life in the United States and going and living in a foreign country. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, have you gone across the street? Have you gone across the street and been the light of the world to your neighbor? Have you gone to the cubicle that you sit next to, that person that you've worked with for years? Have you ever shared the love of Jesus with them? Have you even invited that person to come to church? Let me talk to the students for just a second. Mid-schoolers, high schoolers, college students. Can I tell you something? You're never going to be surrounded by more lost people than you are right now. Never going to be another time in your life. And you think God's got you there for a grade? No doubt your grades are important. Parents, did you hear I said that? Grades are important. But could it be that God's got you at that school for something bigger than just a grade? Maybe he's got you there to make an impact. Maybe he's got you there to be the light of Jesus Christ. Because you know some things about Jesus that those kids that you go to class with, they don't have a clue about any of those things. And someone has to step up. Someone has to go. Someone has to share. I'm going to ask you again, have you gone? Have you even gone to your family? To your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your parents, your sons, and your daughters? Have you shared the difference that Jesus has made in your life? Or are you a reluctant goer? That's what we're going to study about today in Acts chapter 10. We're going to find one of Jesus' best disciples. His name is Peter. And guess what? He doesn't want to go. God says, this is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do. And Peter's like, why would I go there? Because Peter, in his mind, thinks all those people that God wants him to go to should be annihilated as well. Let's look at the story in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. 
He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. All right, so our story begins with a guy by the name of Cornelius. What do we know about Cornelius? We know that he's a God-fearing man. He's a very moral person. Praise to God, but he doesn't know Jesus. No one has ever explained to him how Jesus has died on the cross for his sins, how Jesus has risen again from the dead. So he's a very moral person. He has a high standard of what is right and what is wrong, what is black and what is white. Have you ever met anybody like that? I mean, it's a high, morally standard person, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because no one's ever told them about what a relationship with Jesus could actually be like. That's what we have here with Cornelius. What else do we know about him? We know he's not Jewish. We know he's Roman. He's a Roman centurion. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers. Now, up until this point in time, for the most part, the only people who had heard that Jesus had died and risen again from the dead were the Jewish people. And, and Jesus' followers, who were predominantly Jewish, were kind of keeping Jesus only for the Jewish people. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, and everybody is absolutely blown away that God loves and cares for the Samaritans. In fact, Peter and John come down just to check it out because they got to see it with their own eyes that the Holy Spirit has come upon the Samaritan people. Well, we have a similar situation right here. Up until this point in time, they just thought, well, Jesus just came for Jewish people. He didn't come for Gentiles. Gentiles are, is a name for anybody who's not Jewish. And, and so Peter is beginning to realize maybe, just maybe, Jesus came for more than the Jew. Now, how do we know that he's kind of thinking that? Well, where he's staying, he's staying at the house of a guy whose name is Simon, who is a tanner. A tanner is someone who works with animal skins. And so no self-respecting Jewish person would be hanging around with a non-Jew in their house. And no self-respecting Jewish person would be around a bunch of animal skins because a bunch of the animals in the Jewish beliefs, those were called unclean animals, and they weren't supposed to have anything to do with it. Well, Cornelius has this vision, right? And so he sends his messengers. Peter doesn't know they're coming. He sends the messengers to Peter's house to try to bring Peter back to him so he can hear about Jesus. Now, Peter, unbeknownst to him, goes up onto the rooftop. Now, back in that day, rooftops were flat. They more served as porches than anything else. And so he goes up there to spend some time with the Lord. Look at what happens. It's about noon. The following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, this is Cornelius' people, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. All right, so Peter doesn't know that they're coming for him to take him away to go share Christ with Cornelius and his family. He goes up on top of this little rooftop, kind of a porch. He's praying. He falls into a trance, sees this huge sheet come down, and on this sheet are all kinds of animals, all kinds of birds. And the voice says, take and eat. Pick something and eat it. And Peter is the finished. Like, oh, I can't do that. There are certain things that we're allowed to eat and certain things that we're supposed to stay away from. And 
And God's voice is very upset. He says, don't you tell me that something's unclean that I have made clean. Let me explain to you about the Jewish dietary system, all right? Jews were permitted to eat beef, lamb, and venison. But they weren't allowed to eat pigs, camels, or rabbits. They also could not eat flying insects, but they could eat locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. So they had that going for them, okay? Just to make sure you understand that. Now, these laws were given to these people to show that they were distinctive, and many scholars say that there were dietary laws to make sure the people became healthy. They, it would be health concerns as well. Now, here's the question. Why in the world is God giving Peter this vision? Well, Jews in the first century were some of the most racist, discriminatory people who ever walked the face of the earth. They were God's chosen people, and they were chosen to be a blessing. I mean, back in Genesis, when Abraham is chosen, he says, I'm going to bless you. You'll be a blessing to all nations. Well, they didn't want to be about that. They just wanted to bless their own nation. They just wanted to bless themselves, and everybody else was less than. Everybody else was unclean. If you read through the New Testament, you'll see that there's a lot of times that there's references to dogs in the New Testament. These are not domesticated animals. These are not your best friend. You know, some of you love your dog more than you love your wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some of you love your dog more than you love your husband, more than you love your kids, right? Some of you don't have children anymore. They've moved away, and your dogs are your children. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's not with first century dog. First century dog is not domesticated. First century dog roamed around as a pack of wild dogs wasn't uncommon for a bunch of wild dogs to come into a town and they saw a child, a toddler, running around without anybody to protect them. The dog would grab the child, drag him outside of town, and they would maul the child. They would kill the child. Well, since Peter's been a little kid, he's been told this. Anyone who's not Jewish is a dog. They're not worthy of the breath in their life. Peter, since he's been a little kid, has been told by his mom and his dad and by his community that anybody who's not Jewish, that you should never, ever associate with. Let me, let me tell you some rules that Jewish people had. You ready for this? They couldn't go into the house of a Gentile. They couldn't have a meal with a Gentile. If they went down to the marketplace and they were somehow forced to buy an item from a Gentile, someone who wasn't Jewish, they would take the item, they would bring it home, and they would clean the item to make it clean again. If they saw, this is so sad, if a Jewish person saw a Gentile woman, for whatever reason, going into labor and she needed assistance, a Jew would never leave, lend a finger to help that person out. And this would be their justification. You ready for this? Their justification was that mother and that child are just going to go to hell anyway, so why help them? Prejudice. Racism. Now, I know we talked briefly about this a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to talk about it again because the scriptures bring this up again. This was a big, big deal all throughout the book of Acts. Who is acceptable for the kingdom of God? Who isn't acceptable for the kingdom of God? Here was the problem for the disciples. They had a list. They had a list of those who God loved and those who God didn't love. So i got to ask you a very serious question. Do you have a list? Do you have groups of people that you say are unclean, groups of people that you don't want anything to do with? There's all different kinds of prejudice nowadays, isn't there? You got political prejudice. Let me ask you a question. You're driving down the road, and in front of you is someone with a bumper sticker of the other political party. 
what, 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 what comes into your mind? Is it the love of Jesus? Because I don't think it is. Do you think to yourself, just a little tap on their bumper? I just want to give them a little tap on their bumper. Maybe just shove that bumper right through the... Is that what you're thinking right there for a second? Some of you or your families are fractured because of it. It's friendships you don't have anymore. It's like you care more about your political platform than you do about obeying the commands of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself. That's messed up. And I don't get it. And here's the interesting thing. In 1 John, it says, if you don't love your brother, the love of God's not in you. Do you know that? And yet, and yet we're so divided and so much hate and so much anger towards someone else because they see things a little bit differently than you do. I, I'll give you another form of prejudice that we have today is a, a social economic prejudice. Some of you were raised with a lot of money. And so you were kind of taught, maybe it wasn't ever spoken, but you kind of picked up on the fact that those who don't have a lot of money, well, you value people based on their portfolio rather than the fact that they're made in the image of God. And so you have a tendency to treat people as less than, like they're unclean. And there are pure, poor people who are raised to believe that wealthy people are arrogant, self-absorbed, selfish. You don't think about anybody else except for themselves. And so they look at those rich people and they say, unclean. They don't care about anybody else except for themselves. And, of course, there's racial prejudice. And you would have thought, wouldn't you, that we'd be farther along than we are. And yet, there are people who can't stand somebody else because of the pigmentation of their skin being different than their own. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I had a best friend. His name was Dalton. He was a black young man. And I got a front row seat to see how he was treated differently than I was treated. I'll never forget when he went to our church for the very first time. He was the only black person in that 100% white church. And people would whisper about him. People would say things like, what's he doing here? People told me to stay away from him because of the color of his skin. And then, oh my, when he started dating a white girl, ooh, I thought all hell was going to come down. He shouldn't be dating a white girl. Seriously? Oh, oh, just to let you know, Dalton's been married now to that white young lady named Rhonda for 34 years. And, and yet that's where we're at, right? I mean, that's unclean. Unclean. I want to say this again because you've got to search your heart. You've got to ask the Lord, is there anything in me that's stopping me from loving others the way you love me? Is there any wickedness within me, any deception within me, any hatred towards a group of people where I reserve the love of Jesus Christ and I don't share it with these people? Friends, here's what gets me about Peter. The, the guy is so hard-headed and so stubborn that God has to do this vision three times. 
And even after he has done this vision three different occasions, Peter is still sitting up there on that roof when the knock on the door happens, still wondering, what does it mean? Here's the knock on the door. It's Cornelius' people. And they say, we're here to bring Simon Peter back to our house, back to meet with our leader, Cornelius. That means Peter has to enter into a Gentile home. That means Peter's going to eat with a Gentile person. Will he go? Or will he stay? And all of a sudden he realizes what God just revealed to him. Don't you dare tell me that something that I've made clean is unclean. You go with these men. And I'll give credit to Peter. He gathers his things. And he goes. And he's never done anything like this before in his life. And he's just absolutely blown away that God even cares about these people in the first place. He travels all the way with these friends. Gets into Cornelius' house. And begins to explain the message of salvation. He says, listen, Cornelius, God's over here, we're over here. There's a sin debt between us and God. And there's no way you can pay that sin debt yourself. You can't be good enough to get to the other side. You can't be religious enough to get to the other side. You owe a sin debt. I owe a sin debt. So great that there's no way we can pay for it ourselves. And if you decide to pay for it yourself, that means you're eternally separated from God and you get to go to hell. But Jesus saw the mess that we were in. And so Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And all of your sin, all of my sin was placed upon Jesus. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while I was on the cross? The sky grew dark. Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made right with God. And if you'll ask Jesus to come in your life, he's made a bridge between us and God. And all you got to do is you go through Jesus to have a right relationship with God. You got to admit that you're a sinner. You got to repent of that sin. You got to say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for God. You got to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And then you commit your life to him. You say, everything I am, everything I hope to be. You live your life for an audience of one. All that matters to you is what he says and what he wants for your life. You live every moment of every day for him. doesn't mean you'll be perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But the desire of your heart is to please him in everything that you say and in everything that you do. Cornelius hears about the message of Jesus and how he's died on the cross and risen again from the dead. And he professes his faith in Jesus Christ. And salvation comes to that home. And Cornelius and his entire household say, we want Jesus in our life. And what's the first thing that Cornelius does after he has Christ in his life? Guess what? He gets baptized. Oh, there it is again. That's the pattern. Person gives their life to Christ, then they're baptized. No place in Scripture where a person is baptized first and then later gives their life to Christ. They always give their life to Christ first. And then they're baptized. Their public proclamation of their faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What if Peter wouldn't have gone? What if Peter would have said, you know what, Lord, I appreciate that sheet coming down. And I appreciate you making those things clean that are really unclean. But Cornelius, uh, he's Gentile. And I don't really care what you say. I'm not going. So too bad... So sad, Cornelius. If he would have done that, the message of Jesus would have stalled out. So the question I have for you and me is, is where's the message of Jesus stalling out for us? 
It's interesting. One day Jesus stood on the side of a mountain and looked at his followers. And this is what he said. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand that gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus said that we are the light of the world. And that our job as followers of him is we're supposed to make certain that the light of Christ shines through us so that the whole world can taste and see how amazing Jesus is. Let me ask you something. What, what good is a lantern that's not lit? What, what good is it to fill your car up with gas and keep pushing it from place to place? Does that make you sense? To, what good is it to buy a brand new pair of shoes and leave them in the box? What good is it to buy workout clothes and never get to the gym? Some of you know what I'm talking about right now. You know what I'm saying? What good is it to say you're the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and yet you refuse to shine for Jesus? I read a story this past week. I don't know if it's a true story or not. It happened in the Midwest, according to the story. This is way back in the day when you would have a train tracks go through a town. But back then they didn't have a federal law that said there had to be arms that came down and flashing lights to warn people of the oncoming train. So what they did was they would hire someone and they would have a lantern. And their job was to stand in the street and to wave the lantern. So when the train was getting ready to pass by, they would stop whatever cars were coming that way so there wouldn't be a collision. So we've got a gentleman, that's his job, he's sitting by and all of a sudden he sees a car in the distance and he sees a train in the distance and he thinks, well this is what they pay me for and so he gets out there and he starts waving the lantern back and forth and back and forth thinking that the car is going to start slowing down. But the car didn't slow down, it just kept going the same speed it was going before and he thought, what in the world's wrong with this guy? So he kept waving the lantern back and forth, back and forth and the guy just kept on coming. Well guess what, train kept coming too. Well, this continued on, and now the man thinks, I've got to stop this car. He's not slowing down for anything. So he gets in the middle of the street, and he waves it back and forth, and he begins to shout, Stop! Stop! Train's coming! Train's coming! The car doesn't slow down. And just when the train crosses, guess what? The car blazes by the man as he jumps out of the way. The car plows into the train, and everybody in the car dies. Oh, there's an investigation. And so they come and they say, what in the world happened? And, and the guy says, I was there. I had my lantern. I stood in the road. I, I warned them. I waved the lantern back and forth, but they wouldn't stop. And the police officer was there, said, you forgot to light the lantern. What good is it if your life doesn't reflect Jesus Christ? I was reading this book by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of Christianity. Oh, it's called The Insanity of Obedience. That's twice I've done that. He was talking about writing and, and to visit uh, uh, house churches in China. And he was blown away at these people. Because, you know, you find out you're a Christian in China. That's not good news for you. And so these house churches, they meet in secrecy. And he was absolutely blown away at the number of people who had professed faith in Jesus. And show, they were shown up to these house churches. And so he made a comment. He said, wow, I, I, I'm just astonished at the number of people that you've got coming to your house churches. 
This is what the house church leader said. He said, of that large number of believers that you describe, two-thirds of those people are what we would call members. Only one-third of those people are who we would call true followers of Jesus. Well, Nick asked what the distinction was. And this is what he said. Probably two-thirds of the people you mentioned regularly attend a house church. Most of those people have been baptized. Most of those people contribute financially to the work of a house church. He paused, and then he said, But we, don't consider, we do not consider church members to be true followers of Jesus until they've led other people to Christ and until they've helped plant more house churches. And Nick was shocked when he heard this. And then he writes this. He said, that truth hit me between the eyes. Am I simply an attender of a church? Or am I really following and doing what Jesus commanded me to do? Jesus told us to go. We've stayed. We won't even go across the street. Jesus has told us to go. We've stayed. We won't talk to our co-workers or our classmates. We don't even invite anybody to church. We never even mention there's pie. Good pie. No. You know what we do? We come to the same church year after year, sit in the same section, in the same seat, with the same empty seats around us. And we do it year after year, decade after decade, and we never impact anybody with the message of Jesus Christ. We claim it's the most important message we've ever been given, and we're grateful for the person who shared Jesus with us. It's just we don't want to share him with anybody else. Talk about low-hanging fruit. We won't even reshare a post that we put on the church on our own social media. We won't repost it for whatever reason. I, I really don't know. Maybe you're afraid you'll lose friends. Maybe you're afraid people will find out that you go here and you might get ridiculed. I don't, I don't know. But sometimes we care so much about the opinion of others and we don't care about the souls of other people. But Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. City on a hill can't be hidden. You light a lamp, you wouldn't put it under a bowl, would you? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And we're like, no. So here's my question. You, you just going to wave a lantern? Or are you going to be the light of Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, things have got to change. We're surrounded by people who don't know you. And we're not sharing you. We're not inviting people. We're not being your hands and your feet. You've told us to go. And we've stayed. Forgive us. Put a new fire inside of us to be used in a way we've never been used before, 
to care about people in a way we've never cared before, to take risk like we've never risked before. Lord, make us uncomfortable. Uncomfortable sitting in a room full of empty seats. Uncomfortable watching this on TV or on our computer. Didn't invite anybody to watch it with us. Make us uncomfortable. May we understand more clearly than ever before. There really is a heaven. There really is a hell. And people really are going to one place or the other. And as excited as we are about someone sharing you with us. How can we not pass that good news on to somebody else? So use us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.